Um, so um, let's, let's remember today, let's pray before we begin our study this morning in Romans chapter 8. Father, thank you as we remember your son this morning. And we thank you for those in the history of this country that allows me to stand up here freely with your word open. Um, the freedom wasn't free for my salvation. It wasn't free for my country. So wherever my country is at today, I thank you for those who gave extremely for the freedoms that I have today. And in many ways, those who survived war have suffered even more than those who didn't. And I'm thankful for all of them this morning. Lord, help us as we go into your word to have a clearer picture of your plan for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We're taking this journey through the book of Romans, and it begins with faith in chapter 1. Um, and Paul telling us in Romans 1, 5, that we are called to obedience that comes from faith. In Romans 4.16, he tells us that therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and so that it may be guaranteed. We come to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that word mean? It's important. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. You can have faith without being justified, but you cannot be justified without faith. It's an important understanding as we come into Romans chapter 8. Uh, I heard of a picture of this that may have described to me one day. A, a man had hurried home from church while his family did some other things that day, and he was set on watching the football game that afternoon, and he had a dish satellite, and he got home and realized that a branch had fallen, and it was blocking the dish. So the game's going to start. It was before the ability to record, and he's hurrying up the TV tower. He makes it across the roof, and he's, he's ridding the branches, and he's about ready to go down, and his foot slips. And it's houses like mine, so there's those little helicopters everywhere, and he keeps sliding. And he's frantically trying to slow down as he's coming to the edge of the roof. He slides over the edge and he grabs the gutter. And he's grateful in that moment that they're well attached. He lives in a three-story home. This is a bad situation. His family's gone. He looks down and he says, Is anyone down there that can help me? He yells it again, no response. And and he's hanging there thinking, boy, I should have stayed with my family. I should have done a lot of things differently. And, and finally, he, out of reluctance, he looks up. And he says, is there anyone up there who can help me? Yes, there is. Let go and believe. Is there anyone else up there who can help me? But that's a picture of faith. We read in the Gospel, or in First John last week, chapter two. We read in Romans chapter six and in Romans chapter seven that we can't hang on to the world and have Christ. John says, "If you love anything in the world, 
The love of the Father is not in you. The picture in our minds that God asks us to is to let go of the world and believe. To trust Christ and believe. So you can have faith. I know it's true. I believe it's true. The word of God is true and not be saved, but you cannot be justified without that faith. There are promise after promise after promise in this Romans chapter 8. Faith says they're all true. I know they're true. We learned last week that faith says by my obedience through the Holy Spirit, my faith, which produces work according to Paul, which without work is dead according to James. So I don't bring my works to Christ and say, here's what I've done, accept me. But I come to Christ by letting go of the world and saying, I'm ready to work. And that's the picture we have as we go into Romans chapter 8. We begin with condemnation is removed. But, no buts. Faith says, I know. I ran into someone who is a very respected person in Mendota. I respect him as a person in Mendota. It was a chance meeting this morning, walking to church. He asked me, how are you doing today, Jim? I, I won't say his name. He said, or he asked me that question. I said, I'm one day closer to heaven. And he said, I hope we are. That's not faith. That's religion. Faith says, I know. I'm sure. There is no condemnation. Heaven is in my future. We pick up our reading today in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. We read verses 9 and 10 last week, but I want to read them along with verse 11. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not of the realm of the flesh, but are of the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. We went to 1 John and to some of Paul's letters last week that when we do what the Spirit does through us, we can know that we are headed to heaven. And Paul goes on, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If you don't live by the Spirit, then you don't have Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Verse 11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So Paul gives us many verses about the spirit and is the guarantor, the regenerator, the teacher, the counselor, the comforter. All of these things are the Holy Spirit. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is... Um, a long list of things that happen the moment that you give your life to Jesus Christ, the moment that you let go of the world and you give Christ authority over your day. You're planning tomorrow in the Word of God so that you can be faithful tomorrow. That's living by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit is our title today. And there's a lot of this. It could be a title of a lot of places in the Bible. But it is 
the Spirit is the song we sang. The, the sword of the Spirit is the weapon choice of God. The armor of God includes one weapon, and it is the sword of the Spirit, which that verse finishes with, which is the Word of God. We arm the Holy Spirit by knowing the Word of God and then by prayerfully attaching it to our lives and then by faithfully living it out. John and Paul and all the authors of the New Testament in particular say that that's proof that a person is born again. If I'm hanging from that gutter and I have some faith that that was God, that he would somehow catch me just for a visual. Which is more important? How much faith that he will have that I have for him to catch me or that he will catch me? Which is more important? That he will catch me. If I come up to a shaky bridge and I have all the faith in the world that it will hold me, but it won't hold me, it don't matter. See, Christianity in America is faith in faith. There's no Bible verse for faith in faith. The genuineness of the man who said to Jesus, I do believe, help me in my unbelief is an honest picture. It doesn't matter how much faith I have that religion will save me. It never will. But Jesus says, if I have faith the size of a mustard seed and I point it at Christ, I have everything. So faith can grow. Faith can work out. Faith can produce but the amount of faith that I have isn't as important as where I direct it. If I have mustard seed faith, but Jesus, I choose you, changed forever. If I have all the faith in the world, in me, in religion, in anything but Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. So there are many religions in the world that are sure that their belief is the right belief. It won't matter. There's one way, there's one truth, and there's one life, and it's a person named Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you believe beyond that. Turn in your Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, first of all. 1 Corinthians, just a chapter over, a book over, I'm sorry, chapter 6. Paul in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8 is telling us that the one who raised Christ from the dead and the power in order to do that, the greatest miracle that has ever taken place was Jesus coming from the tomb fully restored. That is the greatest miracle. That's greater than creation. That someone for the first time in history died and was fully restored. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 11, that if the one living in you, the Spirit, is sent by the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, then the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ lives in you. 
He goes on to say that because of that, you will be raised. Faith says it's true. I know it. I'm sure. I will be raised. So we read earlier in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So all Paul's letters say that repeatedly. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Faith says, true. One day closer to heaven, Jim, how do you know that? Because I follow Christ. And by the power of God, he raised him from the dead. And my Bible says that by that same power, he will raise us also. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, I will lose none of all that come to me, and I will raise them on that day. Paul says, I know whom I believed in. I've convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him for that day. I know, Paul says, I know because I have great faith. Maybe, maybe not. I know because this book says so. It's not optional. If there is one verse in my Bible that is incorrect, then the whole Bible is worthless. And there is verse after verse. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians 15, in the interest of time, we won't read a lot of good verses there about the rapture, which is when my body will be glorified. In Ephesians, have you ever felt like I don't know what to pray? Read Paul's letters, because we're going to read a prayer right now. This is what Paul prays about, and I'm convinced that if we pray like Paul, everything else that's happening that we are concerned about will be answered. So first of all, Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1, for this reason, and he's referring to verses 11 through 14 where he says the Holy Spirit was put in us by God the Father, sealed in Jesus Christ, guaranteed our inheritance. Now, verse 15, for this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. John told us over and over in 1 John last week. The way you know a person is a Christian is how they live towards Christ and how they love others. Primarily believer to believer in the church, but all others. Verse 16. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here's his prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 2 last week. The Holy Spirit comes alongside me when I am opening up the word of God. And Paul says, I'm praying that you will do that, and I'm praying that he will make known to you the glory of God so that ultimately you may serve him and know him better. Verse 18. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, being sure of what we hope for, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's magnifying Jesus Christ here and he's praying. I pray that God will will give you the wisdom as you're in his word so that you'll know how to live it out. And I'm praying that that, that your eyes will be opened up so you can understand the scriptures, how awesome God is, what he's really asking me to do. And in closing my prayer, I want to remind you who Jesus is. He is the one that God the Father chose to put over everything. All rule, all authority, all dominion, all of the church. And again, it just it comes up often in the scriptures. Our country is moving away from Christ to man. And they don't understand what Jesus told Pilate. You have no authority to put me on the cross unless I give it to you. Isaiah 6, 9. All of the government is on his shoulders. Any government that doesn't find itself under the authority of Jesus Christ is not a legitimate government in God's eyes. So, All rule, all authority, head of the church. Let's go back to Romans 8. Romans 8, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, because what I've just told you, the power of the Spirit in you and the promise of the resurrection. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Do you see how simple a language that is? I wonder if so-and-so is saved. Am I saved? This is the gospel saying that if you do what you and the world want to do, what happens according to Paul? You die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the sinful flesh, what? You will live. That's pretty straightforward. That's not complicated. You don't hear that at at many altar calls. 
Come forward if you are willing to put to death the misdeeds of the world and your life and you're willing to fulfill your obligation, verse 12, to your master, Jesus Christ. If that is the altar, there may be fewer people that come. If that's the call, there may be fewer people come forward. But there's clearer understanding when they do. Turn to Romans chapter 2 where he explained this from the beginning. Romans chapter 2. Again, this is the gospel Paul is giving us. I think it says verse 8 in your notes. We're going to start in verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality... He will give eternal life. Again, simple language. When you see a person who is persistently seeking honor, glory, and immortality, living with the rapture in mind, being obedient to Christ, being faithful to God, that's a person that you can say they're heading towards what is known as eternal life. They are in it now, and it will be realized for them. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Simple language. If I live for Christ and others, eternal life. If I live for myself, wrath and anger. He says in, in Hebrews chapter 10 that if you're, if you're not faithful in obedience, he uses in that example faithfulness to your church. He says if you can't be faithful to the word of God, then he says all God has left is wrath and anger. If we don't obey him, he says woe to the person who falls into the hands of a living God. Is it complicated? No. Do I have enough power to do it? No. He does. All I need to do is obey it. Verse 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Paul doesn't say anything about going to church here. He says that people who live persistently godly lives, eternal life. People who do what they want to do, wrath and anger. That needs to be the message of the gospel so it's not, wait a minute, I prayed a prayer. Wait a minute, I do go to church. Wait a minute, this, Paul says, persistently seeking honor, glory, and immortality. So Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he says, for those who come to him must believe he is who he says he is. And believe that he will reward those who earnestly seek him. The people rewarded by Jesus Christ are people who earnestly, and Paul says here, persistently seek Christ. Back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 14. Very short, concise, 
verse. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. We have made everyone a child of God in large part in America. Certainly anyone that goes in church doors is a child of God. Paul says in the doctrine of the gospel, spirit-led child of God. That person makes decisions persistently and earnestly from the word of God as their instructions. Child of God. We have watered it down to the place where I believe, you believe, we believe. Spirit-led life, flesh-led death, Paul tells us today. Then he tells us in another place, seeking persistently honor, glory, and immortality, life. Do what Jim wants to do, death. It is not about what I did somewhere I want to be clear about this. Once you are saved, you are immediately saved and forever. But if my testimony is, I prayed a prayer once. And my life is, I do what I want. Then the gospel says, lost. Paul would say to us that, If the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, how can there be no change? How is that possible? Because we are led by spirits, either the Holy Spirit or negative spirits. So verse 14 again, he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Not those who did something in an event, Those who are continuously, the verse would read, led by the Spirit of God are children of God. In Matthew 7, verse 16 and 17, he says in verse 16 that, and he's talking about false prophets like we have today, and he says, look at their lives and you'll know them by their fruit. He says, you're not going to get figs and grapes from thistles and weeds. If what they do, do is follow Christ, then they're legitimate. Jesus says often, I'm not interested in what you say. I'm not even that interested in what you believe is true. It's necessary. But we talked last week about the the two properties of salvation that is legally, Romans 5, 1, therefore since we have been justified by faith, In other words, justification, the doctrine that says you are accepted because your wrath has been put on my son. That transaction happens when I legally die to the world. I die to self. I die to everything but Christ, and I follow Christ. When I do that, I need to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Paul keeps going back to it here. If it's happened, Romans 6, 5, if you are a true believer, if you persistently follow Christ, you can be absolutely sure that you will be raised in a glorified body someday. Romans 8 is promise after promise after promise and mixed in with those promises, constant spiritual checks. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, you have an obligation, verse 12. 
If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. Paul keeps telling you, awesome promise. Here's how you know it's yours. Awesome promise. Here's how you know it's yours. Promise after promise after promise. Faithful life, they're all yours, Paul says. So my faithful life doesn't save me, but it proves that I'm saved. It proves that I understood his offer to be obedient through faith. Verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this is why First John says over and over again, we know that we're children of God because of the spirit he's given us. So that's not a, that's not an atmosphere, that's not a feeling, that's an obedience. So when I obey God, my spirit, by the Holy Spirit, says, Daddy. That would be a, a direct translation from Greek to English is, Daddy, Abba, Father. We don't know that because we go to the right church. We don't know that because we've heard the truth. We know that because we've died to the world and we're living for God. The only way I can live for God is by the Holy Spirit. And if I do live by the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, Daddy, my Father, Jesus, my brother. So important verses to understand. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, we are no longer slaves in Romans 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, he is reminding Timothy of this, who Paul describes as the most faithful person he has ever met. But he's still driving home these same truths because Timothy was a person who believed always, was faithful always, but wasn't a confident person by nature. So Paul is is urging him to be confident as he is dying, reminding him of these promises that God didn't give us a spirit to leave us doubting and unsure. Verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He, if we looked in Acts and we looked in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's talking about Timothy's ordination. When Timothy was ordained as a pastor to be a pastor of the church in Ephesus, he's saying, fan it into flame, Timothy. I'm not asking you for your strength and your courage. I'm asking you to be obedient. And if you're obedient, you fan into flame. If you do what he tells you to do, it's like a billow. The most hot gas that you can add to a fire is oxygen. And if you fan it into flame and the flame gets brighter, then he says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Verse 7. So in other words, don't worry, Timothy, if you feel unsure of yourself, that never mattered. But Timothy, I know you're sure about God. And I know that you know that the Spirit lives in you. And I'm just here to remind you that he didn't give us a spirit to be timid. 
He gave us a spirit of power. What kind of power, Paul? Resurrection power. The exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Timothy. Fan it into flame. Because that very power is also constantly loving. The testimonies of a believer, again, acknowledging Christ in all you do, loving those in your church. The power of how many times we see one another in the New Testament. We have the power to love every time. Agape love is only from God. It only comes through us, and it comes by the power of the person in us who perfectly knows the Father that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 2 last week. So the Holy Spirit completely knows me, completely knows God, knows every letter of every word in this book and the theology behind every letter. He knows my life from beginning to end. He knows the next circumstance, the next moment, the next person I'm going to face And Timothy, Jim, I want to remind you, the power in you is more than enough. Be faithful. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. It isn't impossible for a believer to fear. It's absolutely possible for a believer to be tempted to fear. In obedience to God, fear disappears. Isn't that good to know? When I do what Christ commands me in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, fear leaves. Stephen's face was glowing as they were stoning him to death. That seems unfathomable. John is explaining to us in the I Know book in the Bible, 1 John, the same thing that Paul is teaching us in Romans 8. We're not slaves of fear. Fear can only be directed up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us. In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 12, no one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is complete in us. The opportunities that you have to love believer to believer, because that's who John is writing to, to the extent that which you do that is the extent to which you know. The extent to which you make yourself available, we talked about this in Sunday school, suffering is granted to us. Philippians chapter 1. Suffering at its base level is, I'm not serving the world. I'm not serving me. I'm serving him, and I'm serving you. John says, if you do that, then you know. You just do. Because the Spirit will testify with your spirit, he's my dad. When I'm faithful to love others. The primary way In the Bible, to love God is to love others. Even Jesus says that repeatedly. So in verse 13, reading on, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. 
he has given us of his spirit. So if you do, verse 12, love one another, then you know because the spirit testifies with your spirit, verse 13. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in him. And so, and so we know and rely on the love God has given us. In other words, agape love, again, for me to genuinely serve you and for you to genuinely serve me in truth and in love, it can't be my love. How can I love you? How can you love me? By relying on the love God has for me and trusting that it can go through me, fruit of the Spirit, love. This love is available only to believers. This is a difficult question to understand agape love. You have to choose the Greek word to answer this question in the world. Agape love is the choice to love one another, to love God that God uses. Can two unsaved people love each other? No. Love does not exist to a person until they follow Jesus Christ. Emotions? Yes. Greek word eros? Yes. Greek word phileo? Love you like a brother. Eros, I'm attracted to you? Yes. So the divorce rate isn't what it is because people love each other so much and then they something happens. It's that Love is actions done in truth. It is always a choice. Every relationship has the opportunity to love once they obey Christ, but not before them. So verse um, 15, anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, remember that's aspect number one. He already gave us aspect number two. And verse 12, to love one another. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus. John is progressing here. Do you love God? Wait a minute. Sherry, let me ask you if Brian loves God. In other words, if Brian is known for loving God, then his life testifies to Jesus Christ. Tina, does Larry love one another? In other words, Judy, does Larry love one another? Is he known for loving others? If yes, yes, then John says, no fear of judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a hell. There is wrath. It's not mine. Do I deserve it? Yes. Will I receive it? Absolutely not. How do you know? Because I love God and I love others, neither of which is possible unless the Spirit of Christ lives in me. And if the Spirit of Christ lives in me, then Christ is my Lord. So verse 18, there is no fear in love but perfect love 
drives out fear. Again, obedience, he tells us the two aspects here. Verse 12, love one another. Verse 17, testify about God. Verse 18, there is zero fear of condemnation. There is zero fear of judgment. This is how we know for sure. And then he says that love is agape love, which is known as perfect love. If you're loving God with your life, if you are loving others with your life, you know hell is coming. You know there is wrath. And you know it's not yours. And if we can focus on those things, the things down here get pretty small in comparison. So verse 18, there is no fear in love. If you are scared all the time, there are serious questions to answer that I would love to help you answer, not from me, but from the Word of God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Will a Christian ever be punished by God for their sins? They will not. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. So when the relation starts with, relationship starts with God, with this mustard seed faith, I don't have a lot of faith, God, but it's all yours. Everything is put in motion. The Spirit of God indwells me and is not leaving. Jesus walks with me and is not leaving. Abba Father has continuous access open to me. So when that happens and I start to obey, fear gets pushed aside. And John says after he tells us that at the end of the verse, if fear remains, then the perfect love of God isn't there. So there are steps to take, obedience that comes from faith, that will actually wash fear out of your love, life. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That's how we can love. When we receive the love of God through salvation, the promises of God, then we are indwelt with a spirit who can empower us to love others. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 17. Another promise. And the thing that unveils this promise visibly, experientially in our lives, is the, the trials that we go through. Verse 17, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Turn to Acts chapter 14. In Paul's first missionary journey. 
He makes his way through what we know the Galatian churches. He writes the, the book of Galatians as his first letter. And he goes to Lystra where his primary disciple Timothy lives. And Timothy's probably a very young boy who must have seen Paul stoned to death. Um, and that happens earlier in chapter 14. By the time Paul comes to Lystra on his second missionary journey, everywhere he goes, he's hearing about Timothy. This teenage boy that has this testimony everywhere Paul goes. Oh, and there's this disciple in Lystra named Timothy who's very faithful. Really? I don't know if Paul knows who Timothy is before his second journey, but it's clear that Timothy knows who Paul is. So he goes back, going back to his first journey, he's stoned to death. He goes on back to Assyria, recovering from his wounds, and then goes back to Lystra, where Timothy would join him a few years later. And Paul is talking about this suffering issue in verse 21 where he says, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. These are the Galatian churches, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul is explaining here that suffering is inevitable. And look at the language that he uses here. We must go through many hardships. Suffering begins the first time you love God. Suffering begins the first time you love others. So Paul says in Romans chapter, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, that we must keep the truth and love connected together. When I love someone on the terms according to the scriptures, Jesus suffered 33 years, not a couple of days at the end of his life. He suffered every day in some form because he always put the Father ahead of himself. And he always put others ahead of himself. And that is a hardship to yourself. That is a form of suffering to yourself. So there are persecution will increase the more faithful I am. But it starts immediately. As soon as a person stops being self-seeking, it costs them. If two people love each other, it's because they are sacrificing for each other. Their actions and not their language defines their love. And if I love Terry and Terry loves me in the way prescribed by God, and Terry and I will both admit I got a lot of room to grow, then it costs me something. And it costs her something. And that needs to be true so that Paul can say we must suffer many things in order to en enter the kingdom of God. In Philippians chapter 1, that's been granted to us. That now, because I can love for the first time, 
Until then, I'm going to try and give you fuzzy feelings and you try to give me fuzzy feelings and I hope that lasts. But when we follow Christ, for the first time, agape love can flow through me. So I'm still human. I'm still sinful. But when I allow the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. When I allow the spi- my Spirit to connect to the Holy Spirit, I can love Terry the way that Christ does. Because I now am able to love. We love because He first loved us. Agape comes down and then it can go through. And Paul says in um, Acts that that needs to be how we live. Back to, um, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, where he wrote his first letter back to where he had been and was going back to in Acts chapter 14. In Galatians chapter 3, Verse 28 is an important verse that there's, there is an order in the church. There is um, God the Father, Christ the Son, men, women, children. Angels are below women in that order. But there is no inequality. God doesn't see He sees that his design, his order will be the most effective in a church, but he doesn't see individuals in the church as different levels or different importance or even inequality in any way. So in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus, excuse that's verse 26, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a completely level playing field. Any church that has a picture of hierarchy or magisterium that puts people at a higher level than people is a wrong picture. So there is an order. There is positional assignments But there is equality, Galatians 3.28. Because someone is an overseer does not put them on level two. It puts them as an overseer on level one. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. We're talking about the the co-heirs that he's talking about in Romans 8.17. So we have Abba Father, verses 16 and 17. We are immediately Christ's brothers and sisters, meaning that all that he has is shared. Everything. The only thing about Jesus Christ that I won't have an equal part in is his deity. Everything that he is authority over, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything that God has, if I follow his son, becomes mine. Turn to Romans chapter 4. As we see this picture, Abraham is my father if I accept God on his terms the way that Abraham did. 
Again, when we go into a passage like this, faith says, wow, this is all true. I know it's true. The Spirit testifies with me as I read it in His sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. It was not through the law, we talked about that a lot the last few weeks, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Are you an heir of the world? If you're a Christ follower, the answer is yes. You are an heir of the world, the entire world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith, there's that word again. Faith says that I'm an heir of the world. Faith empowers me to obey Christ. Faith says I know. Verse 14. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. We've talked about that at length. What's the purpose of the law? To show me I'm a sinner. Well, how can I become an heir to the world? Not by the law, only by following Christ. Verse 16, Therefore the promise of being heir of the world, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, God is my Father, Jesus is my brother, I'm in the family of God, all that He has is mine, and if we even scratch the surface down here to what that includes, we would have a great appreciation for Romans 4.13. But verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith. The conduit between me and God is faith. The connection between me and God is faith. So faith comes from hearing. I hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Faith. I'm not saved yet. I need to be justified. I die to the world and repent. And I choose Christ by faith. I'm connected forever. So therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. Mercy is given to everyone. Grace is only given to Christ's followers and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, meaning the Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles. He is the father of us all. Remember, as a kid, When you sang Father Abraham in Sunday school, this is the verse it's derived from. He is the father of everyone who believes and follows and obeys Jesus Christ. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into being Things that were not. Totally destitute. Apart from God. Wrath on me. Drowning in my sins. Jesus Christ has the authority to say. My father's child. My brother. Everything I have is yours. If I will die to the world. And follow Christ. So as I said last week in the opening, at the introduction, it can be a very simple picture. I've heard about Jesus and what he did. I'm going to follow him. Boom. 
The problem is in this country, the picture is so muddy. Well, if God is love, he should do this, he should do that. And what if I do this and what do I do that? He said to Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, follow me. And they did. Abraham is the father of my faith. Abraham, I want you to give up all your wealth. I want you to move to a place you've never been. It's never going to be your eternal inheritance, but I have an eternal inheritance for you. And it is more awesome than the stars in the sky. And Abraham went. Choosing to follow Christ makes all of this yours. He's going to introduce us into suffering next week. We'll leave that alone, but let's close. Let's go to Romans 8. If you think about the reality of what Jesus did, if you think of the picture in Isaiah 6, read the first eight verses on your homework assignment today. Isaiah is about to begin his ministry. His commission is in chapter 6. And he sees a vision, a literal vision. This isn't a dream. He didn't have some bad food. He is literally seeing heaven. And he sees this thing that he can struggle to, to even describe. And it is this enormous throne and these cherubims with their, their wings and, and, and their singing Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and, and, and heaven is shaking from the power of this, this singing and the Shekinah glory of the one on the throne. And the one on the throne is Jesus before he's born in a major. And this person, Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5, comes down off of this throne lives for 33 years of ridicule and slander and, and his own family members hated him. Finally, he makes it his way to the cross and he suffers for my sins. And as we read last week, he was, he was punished for my sins, my transgressions. The, the, the thing that brought death was put on him. It was God's will to crush him. That glorious one? Yes, that glorious one. He came down for my benefit. The punishment that brought me peace, God put on him. And he was cut off from the land of the living, assigned to the grave of the wicked because of me. And Paul asks the question in this verse we're going to read, do you doubt that he's going to give you everything he has? In other words, he already has. He gave you his son. Verse 32. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him. Graciously give us all things. Heavenly Father thank you so much for your son. Help us to be Christ followers so that those who don't know him can see him on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.